Okay, if you would take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Um, Speaking about the authority of the Lord's church. Colossians chapter 1, we've used as our starting text, Verse 15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So as we consider, as we continue to consider the authority of the Lord's churches, we understand that Christ is the head over all true churches. But not all churches have Christ as their head, as we started to look at last week. So let's pray and then we'll continue in this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your, your love, your mercies to us. We thank you for the truth of thy word. And, Father, we pray that you help us to rightly divide thy word and apply it to life and uh, help us to be, um, give us understanding into thy word for our good and thy glory and for the furtherance of the gospel and for the faithfulness of Lighthouse Baptist Church. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we've... uh, you know, we started with uh, this passage and establishing the authority of Christ. And uh, last week we did pass out this uh, rough kind of looking graph. And I hope you have that with us. So we're going to look more at that detail this week, today. But anyway, but we established that Christ is the head of all churches. That, you know, all churches for the first about 200 years were local only. They all believed that. Uh, there was no church-state uh, combination where, and, and, and uh, you know, all churches were independent, although there were seeds of heresy developing very early on. And we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we read this passage last week and some others like it, but I'm going to start here again. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving who to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And so, you know, if you read this and think about a very popular church in the world, you would say, oh, yeah, that's them, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, think of the things it says. Of course, seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, but lies and hypocrisy. You remember the scandals? That's still that's still going on. By the way, you know the scandals that come out in the what was it two thousand nineties two thousands of all the priests and the you know the the sexual scandals that they continue to try to cover up and they move priests from here and there and everywhere to try and you know, cover up their scandals in the Catholic Church, um, and, and, and so on. Uh, they forbid to marry. There's you have abstinence, uh, commanding abstain from meats. 
And I remember when I was in Bible school, one of the men there was a former Catholic, and um, he was telling about they had a guy, uh, an evangelist of some kind that came in, I don't know if he came to their church, this is after he got saved, anyway, came into Clearfield, and it's in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, and they allowed him to do something on the radio, it was a secular, not a Christian radio station, I don't think, but anyway, and and uh, this evangelist confronted the, the uh, what do they call him, DJ, DJ about the the control and power of the Catholic Church, and he tried to deny it. He said, well, do you ever think about why the public schools serve fish on Friday? He said, no. He said, it's because of the Catholic Church. When I was in high school, every Friday, every public school had fish. You know why? Because of the Catholic Church. Because they were supposed to only eat fish on Friday. Now, you know, I don't know that that's still the way it is, uh, well, the DJ got fired because that aired. Um, anyway, you know, and, and this is forbidding to marry to, and, and commanding to abstain from meats which God has ordained. So by the end of the first century, what we're saying here is there were doctrinal errors which were infiltrated into some of the churches. We read this in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, John, uh, by the Spirit of God, uh, the Lord Jesus giving... You know, was talking to his churches. He called the church at Thyatira. He said, "You have that Jezebel prophetess calling herself a teacher, and and so on." Uh, the church at Sardis. He said, "You are dead." Uh, and he says, "There's just a few names in Sardis that have not defiled themselves. A few names." So there was a few people at the church of Sardis who were true. Everyone else, false. So these are the things that had already infiltrated some of the churches. And, you know, in the graph that we gave you, uh, we talked about the uh, church fathers. And, you know, some of these were as early as prior to, lived prior to 100 A.D. and then a little after. And, and they were already starting church, starting to teach universal church theory. Uh, they were starting to teach by the end of the second century authority over bishop over many churches. Um, so that's what the Bible calls to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Nicol- the doctrine of Nicolaitans. And um, so it's an exaltation of the clergy, and then you have the common people. And that's and God said, I hate that. And, and so these things were already creeping in. And then, of course, you had, you had uh, uh, others, and it just got worse and worse. And until finally... Uh, in 325 A.D., you had the birth, really the birth kind of, of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, the seeds are already being laid prior to that, but it really came into fruition when Constantine saw the cross in the sky, supposedly. I think he had a nightmare or a bad dream. But so he saw a cross in the sky and, and, and you know, heard this voice saying, fight in this symbol or whatever. And, um, and so he united, he, tried, he united the Church of Rome with the state and gave it um, really power and that was really kind of the, the, the first uniting of the church state. Prior to that there had been no church state relationship. The church was always separate from the state. The church did not dictate to the state how it ruled. The state did not dictate to the church how it ruled. Uh, 
kind of the way it is and has been in America. That's that's and there's reason why we have that, and I'll get to that in hopefully before we the end of the day. Uh, it's because of our Baptist heritage. But anyway, so uh, we talked about how you know Revelation 17 talks about this 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 harlot, and that we believe to be a a picture, a graphic picture of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, most of the all the uh, uh, early um, the early Anabaptists referred to the Pope as the Antichrist. In the 10th century, a bishop of, or- of Orleans uh, called the Pope Antichrist. In the 11th century, uh, Berenger of Tours denounced Rome's dogmas and maintained the Roman Church was the see of Satan. This is in the 11th century. The Waldensians, throughout most of their long history, you know, they, they were uh, Anabaptists from that, that trace their lineage, say that all it goes back all the, to the apostles in Christ, uh, have identified the Pope as the Antichrist, and uh, and so on. So these these this is this has been you know. Even the early Protestant Bibles contain dramatic woodcuttings portraying the scarlet woman of Revelation 17, plainly identifying the Roman Catholic Church with this apostate religious system. That was Protestantism early on, and so, so th- you know this is this is so you have now two lines you might say of churches, one true, one false, one who has Christ as head. And one who now you have a man as head. He's called the vicar of Christ, the Pope. Uh, and really, it's Antichrist. And so this, again, this came about during that time. Uh, and with this begins the persecution of faithful believers by those who call themselves Christians. The Gamma Catholic Church. And, of course, this started basically mostly with Augustine, although there were some earlier in that. Augustine you know, taught that the, the passage of Luke where it says to compel them in means you use force. And, uh, and of course, you know, again, uh, they, they tried to force and they, they uh, persecuted true believers. So and the interesting thing that, 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 the thing that I under, became, came to understand that I really never thought about before was that Along with the true churches, we also have the same, the, the, the uh, true Bible manuscripts. The, those that were referred to as Anabaptists, they were, they were referred to by other names. You know, as, as you see in the first page of that graph, there was called, there were, some were called monetists. And usually there was a man in particular who was most outspoken or most scholarly and trying to refute errors of the Roman Catholic Church. So, so they kind of followed these names, but, but again, they didn't exalt them to like a head over a lot of churches. He was just a pastor of one of the larger churches. Anyway, the Monetists were Baptist-like, 2nd century, Novatians, 4th to 7th century, Paulicians, 7th to the 16th century, Waldensians, go all the way back to that time. And uh, in fact, Ted Alexander says in his book on... Uh, Page 21, 
This is uh, the Waldensians of whom the world was not worthy by Ted Alexander. And he says, quote, The author has been an avid researcher in this area for the better part of two decades, and based on his studies, has come to the same conclusion as many of the Waldensians themselves. Hang on the wall of the Waldensian Trail of Faith in Valdez, North Carolina. That's right, just a couple hours from here. Is a plaque that reads as follows. 58 to 59 A.D. Apostles of Christ plant seeds of Christianity in the Waldensian Valleys as they travel across the Caution Alps into Gaul, France, and other parts of Europe. This plaque is the first of a series in the Waldensian Trail Faith headquarters that make up a timeline for the history of the Waldensians. Their view of their own history, which places their origins in apostolic times, is not uncommon, nor has it been uncommon among the Valdez of any area. It is widely reported that when Waldensian children asked their parents how old their faith was, the answer has often been from time immemorial. Immemorial, unquote. So, from the very beginning of Christ. Um, and these, these people, these, these people of, you know, all these groups were alike in faith and belief, like us. And they also carried with them the true manuscripts, what we refer to as the Texas Receptus manuscripts of the Bible, where we get our King James translation. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had other ver- versions of the Bible made for Constantine, Constantine Order 50, and it's believed that these are those of the different family of manuscripts which are corruption. And uh, so, in the, so they come from that tree. So you have these, these groups of people, the Albigensians, again, they were just in different areas. You know, the, the, the Waldensians mostly were in the, the Italian, the French, uh, southern France, northern Italy. Um, and then the, Waldensian, the Albigensians and the others uh, were in uh, different parts of France and Germany. Uh, they be- all became known as, by the 16th century, they're all known as Anabaptists. That was a name given to them by the Catholics or the Protestants. And Anna means again, and of course Baptist. That means they baptized again. They refused to accept because they judged that anyone from the other family tree was unauthorized, was an unauthorized church. It was not authorized by Jesus Christ. And so as you look at that other side of the, you know, you have the Roman Catholic Church, and you have Ambrose, Augustine, 350s, 400. You have the split of the Eastern Orthodox Church around 1054 A.D. And really, it's not much different than a regular normal Catholic Church. And then around in October 31st, 1517, Luther nails his uh, 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. And that starts the, what's called the Reformation. Now, why is it called the Reformation? Well, Luther never left the Catholic Church. He never intended to leave the Catholic Church. Now, he was put out of the Catholic Church. But his intention was not to leave the Catholic Church. He was only trying to reform it. But what did Jesus say about a tree? Look at Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. 
Verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes, or thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You see, the Catholic Church is, is like a harlot wife who leaves her husband. And that's why it calls it a harlot. Um, and, you know, to think about, you know, God's plan is not to reform it. God's plan is you leave it. You know, in uh, uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 18. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 18. And verse 4, And another heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. So God commands those who are saved to leave it. Again, Luther, you know, the, all the reformers did not leave the Catholic Church. They may got kicked out or... Or they were um, they lost their positions and 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 so on. They, and so they were they started other churches. But they, what they did was in trying to reform these churches, they brought many of the same doctrines of the Catholic Church and started another kind of church. Uh, Lutheranism is so much like Catholicism, you can hardly tell the difference. Um, and so. You know, you have all these, and then from all this, from the Protestant, you know, this started the Protestant Reformation, and, and you know, all mainline denominations are from, came out of, or are, are, came off the tree of the Catholic Church. Uh, and again, they were trying to reform it. And this is a church that man built, not Jesus. So it's man-made. Its root is corrupt. There's only one thing to do with it, and that's leave it. So Luther reforms it. He, you know, he, does, he does preach salvation by faith. He did translate a Bible into German using the Texas Receptus, believe it or not. He did. So there's some good things he did. But you know, he did a lot of the same things the Catholic Church did. He persecuted Baptists, Anabaptists. He persecuted Jews also. And and so so out of the Protestants, you know, you get you have Lutherans, Episcopalians, you have Anglicans, you have Presbyterians, you have Methodists. All these are Protestant denominations. They're protesters. That's why they call them Protestant because they protested. Um, Joel, I think it was uh, no, not Joel Smith, Noel Smith, Noel Smith in an article. I have a lot of stuff here I want to read. Um. He says this. Here are a few, and I'm quoting. This is Noel Smith. Uh, he says, Here are a few of the reasons why, in the midst of a dissolution of the basic institution of civilization, being a Baptist increasingly gives me a feeling of spiritual and intellectual anchorage. 
Baptists are a people. They have a historical identity. They have a historical image. Their continuity is the longest of any Christian group on earth. Their doctrines, principles, and practices are rooted in the apostolic age. I am not a Pharisaical sectarian, but I don't confuse Baptists with the Reformers. The Reformers wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. The Baptists were against the Church because it was not a New Testament Church. Protestantism originated in the Reformation, and Protestantism is Protestism. That's negative. Negativism has within it the seed of its own disintegration. The Baptists were not... um, the Baptists were not reformers. They were not protesters. They were positive. Freedom of conscience is not a Reformation doctrine. It is a Baptist doctrine. Religious liberty is not a Reformation doctrine. It is a Baptist doctrine. Believer's baptism is not a Reformation doctrine. It is a Baptist doctrine. Baptism of the believer by immersion in water, symbolizing the believer's death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, is not a Reformation doctrine. It is a Baptist doctrine. The local, visible, autonomous assembly with Christ as its only head, and as the Bible as its sole role of faith and practice is not a Reformation doctrine, it is a Baptist doctrine. Worldwide missions is not a Reformation doctrine, it is a Baptist doctrine. The Reformers had no missionary vision and no missionary spirit. For almost 200 years after the Reformers, the Reformation churches felt no burden to implement the Great Commission. What kind of world would the West have been had Protestantism become its master? Who but the Baptists kept Protestantism from becoming master? The general attitude today is that truth is determined by the passing of time, that there are no eternal abiding truths. You can't turn the clock back. Time invalidates all truth. Time invalidates one set of truth and fastens another set upon us. But Baptist history repudiates this philosophy of fatalism. Baptists today are believing, teaching, preaching, and practicing the truths that were believed, taught, preached, and practiced 2,000 years ago. It gives me a feeling of stability to reflect that I, as a Baptist, am in the stream of this long continuity of faith and practice. The Baptist people are a great continuity. They are a great essence. They are a great dignity. The world never needed them more than it needs them today. And so these reformers, again, protested. They protested the Catholic Church. Baptists never protested the Catholic Church. They were never part of it. They were never part of it. They just were against it. And, And so... Uh, you have this, you know, the, the Protestantism begins, has a beginning, again, has a beginning, it's not with Christ, has a beginning, and it's in the Catholic Church. That's its origin. That's its roots. All right? So, and, and of course, during all this time, you still have the Anabaptists who are still uh, living, being persecuted, uh, being hounded uh, throughout uh, uh, the known world, the Catholic Church is trying to eradicate them. Uh, in his book again, uh, the uh, Brother Ted Alexander talks about the persecution that the Waldensians endured. And it says, uh, the bold of the Valdez, that's the Waldensians, grew in their witness. The fierce of the opposition came. The Waldensian Trail of Faith Museum rates, relates the following, quote, The more overt boldness of the Waldensians unleashed a new reign of terror on the valleys. Over a 200-year period, they fought 33 wars to defend their faith. French and Italian armies periodically purged the valleys. 
rampantly destroying churches, homes, raping, pillaging, committing wholesale slaughter against entire villages. The people also suffered unspeakable, inhumane tortures inflicted by inquisitors of the medieval church, pressuring them to renounce their, their, quote, heretical beliefs. In 1688, a particularly horrendous onslaught nearly annihilated the Waldensians. A surviving remnant of 3,000 marched over the frozen Alps to exile in Switzerland. Uh, and so, you know, for hundreds of years, they, they were persecuted and almost annihilated. Uh, of course, that's the Waldensians, and they fled to different parts of the world. And, uh, and, and you know, some of them survived, but many, many, many died. Uh, so this is their history, um, and and again, if, I want to also read you some of the some of the uh, doctrines of the Catholic Church, so you understand really what I'm referring to. And this article is titled "The Changing Face of Rome." Now, this is just some of the things. This is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, by 300 A.D., there's prayers for the dead, making sign of the cross, uh, the Mass as a daily celebration, the beginning, 400 and th- uh, 394 was the Mass, a daily celebration, 431 A.D., the, the beginning of the exaltation of Mary, term Mother of God. When I read last week, the guy that came up with that term was Augustine. Uh, by 600 A.D., prayers directed to Mary, dead saints and angels. We're not commanded anywhere in the Bible to pray to saints or angels. Uh, 607, the title Pope or Universal Bishop given to Boniface III by Emperor Focus. Uh, 709 A.D., the kissing of the Pope's foot began with Constantine. He was a Pope, not, not the, the ruler, not the... Uh, Constantine the Great. Anyway, uh, 927 A.D., College of Cardinals established. 995, canonization of dead saints. So they canonized the dead saints and, you know, memorials to them and whatever and worshiped them. Uh, 1079, mandatory observance of the Mass. So now it's no longer you can when you want. You have to. You know, you're required. Uh, 1090, the rosary. It's a mar- the Mechanical praying, invented by Peter the Hermit. In 1184, the Inquisition, instituted by the Council of Verona. The Inquisition was their, their uh, Gestapo. And, uh, you know, if you, were, if you were heard, it's interesting, all, you know, history, they say history repeats itself. You know, what are the stuff we hear nowadays that, you know, are, is being encouraged that to, to, Turn your neighbor in if you hear something about them, you know, bad, you know, to turn them in. Well, this is the kind of things that, that the Inquisition used, and many times against Catholic people themselves. I mean, some of these people they put to death were, were Catholics who just had que- just questioned. You didn't dare question the authority of the Pope. Or you could end up, you know, arrested by the Inquisitors and the... And the, the, the normal thing was, if you were arrested by the Inquisitors, you never were freed. You were always guilty. You're guilty. Uh, it's almost impossible that, that you know, they wouldn't to, uh, prove your innocence. Uh, 1190, sale of indulgences. 
where you know you for a certain certain price you can buy favors with the pope or so many years less in purgatory or no purgatory at all you know that's what the indulgences did for you so they always come at a price of course that that is what up one of the things that upset luther so bad was this guy was running around selling indulgences like crazy and promising all these things and it made him so angry and so he began to make a list of grievances he had against the church and and that was his 95 thesis anyway 1215, transubstantiation, claimed by Pope Innocent. So that's where the water or the wine actually becomes blood, and the wafer actually becomes the real body of Christ. So you're, eat, you're drinking blood and you're, you know. Um, the adoration of the wafer, 1220, 1229. The Bible, think of this. The Bible forbidden to laymen. Do you know they don't want you reading the Bible? Because Bible enlightens people. There's a reason why they call this, John in Revelation calls it mystery Babylon. Because it's full of mystery. Think about the mystery of the powers the priest has when he can pray and all of a sudden that wine becomes blood or that wafer becomes the body of Christ. And you know, all the things they claim they can do. And... and um, and you know, oh, you can't interpret the Bible for yourself. You have to be, you have to have a priest interpret for you. So the Bible was forbidden to laymen. This is twelve twenty nine, and placed in the index of forbidden books by the Council of Valencia. Fourteen fourteen, the cup forbidden to people at communion at, by the Council at Constance. Fourteen thirty nine, purgatory proclaimed as a dogma by the Council of Florence. Uh, 1439, Doctrine of Seven Sacraments affirmed. So there's not just two ordinances, there's seven. Marriage is one. Uh, you know, and I never understood this. Marriage is an ordinance of the church, and yet the priests weren't allowed to get married. Doesn't that sound kind of funny? Kind of odd. Um, there's lots of oddities like that. You know, it kind of reminds me of the Amish. But anyway, um, let's see. 1508, Hail Mary. Uh, 1534, the Jesuit order, and they are the, the, uh, they call them the black priests. Uh, they, they were the KGB of the Catholic Church. 1545, tradition declared equal authority with the Bible by the Council of Trent. 1546, apocryphal books added, uh, to the Bible. Uh, 1854, Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary proclaimed by Pope Pius III. And what that means is she was not only a virgin all her life, she was born of a virgin. And she was a virgin all her life. How she could have children and be a virgin all her life is a mystery to me because the Bible says, you know, aren't his brethren all here? And it names them, James and Joseph and Judas and, and his sisters. And Anyway, um, but after all, you're not supposed to read the Bible. I'm supposed to interpret it to it for you, you know. <laughs> the, uh, let's see. 1864, the syllabus of errors, quote-unquote, proclaimed by Pope Pius IX and ratified by the Vatican Council, condemned freedom of religion, conscience, speech, press, and scientific discoveries which were not approved by the Roman Church and also asserted the Pope's temporal authority over all civil rulers. What does that make him? It makes him the supreme ruler of the world. And believe me, 
they practiced it for many years, as I shall prove to you. Infallibility of the Pope declared in 1870. Uh, in 1907, Pope Pius X, encyclical against, against modernists, quote-unquote, condemning all intellectual research and thought not pleasing to the Pope. Do you know why they called the Dark Ages the Dark Ages? Because it was during the Dark Ages that Rome controlled the world as the civil, not only as the religious power, but as the civil power, and they would not allow, again, the Bible to be read. They didn't want the Bible in common hands, and they suppressed education. Therefore, people were unlearned and ignorant. The Reformation brought about a renaissance of learning and opened people's eyes to the truth. And it broke the control and power of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that's why, the, by the way, that's why the Baptists, the Anabaptists, they could never control because they had the Bible. They, and they read the Bible and they memorized the Bible and, you know, and they had light. Uh, 1950, Assumption of Virgin Mary, bodily ascension into heaven shortly after her death. So Mary ascended back to heaven just like Jesus did. So these are, these are some of the doctrines of the great whore. Uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, just to give you an example, in Revelation 17, it says that, that the uh, 17 and verse 18, it says, The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now, uh, and it calls her the mother of harlots. The, the, uh, and I'll just give you a few illustrations of that. Uh, Martin Luther visited Rome expecting to find the head of holiness. He testified, quote, If there be a hell, Rome is built over it. Unquote. That's what he said. If there's a hell, Rome is built over it. Um. Pope Benedict, who ruled from, was a pope from 1032 to 1045, was a murderer and adulterer. The Catholic Encyclopedia admits he lived a, quote, dissolute life. Pope Sixtus IV, 1471 to 84, erected a house of prostitution in Rome. Pope Pius II had two illegitimate children. Pope Innocent VIII had at least two illegitimate children that he raised to a position of authority and wealth in the Catholic Church. Pope Alexander VI, 1492 to 1503, had at least four illegitimate children. He made them rich through appointments. He made his son, Caesar Borgoya, a cardinal when he was only eight years old. Caesar was an immoral and violent man who had his brother put to death as well as his sister, uh, Luz Cruzia's husband, Alexander held unspeakable origins in his palace and kept mistresses who were married women. He died of syphilis. Rome's priests have been immoral. They've taken vows of celibacy, but they have not been celibate. Uh, you know, this was the, the, the condition of, of Rome. Uh, been made drunk with, and, and uh, to, to, illustrate her power over civil governments. You know, again, the apostles never yoked with a civil government or secular government in any way. Uh, they were establishing churches, and they didn't have any, they didn't 
there was no church-state union. And, but during the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church yoked with secular government and oftentimes even ruled it. In, for example, in 302, Pope Boniface VIII issued a papal bull entitled Unum Sanctum, in which he claimed that no one can be saved who does not submit to the Pope as the supreme head of the church and demanded that kings and all earthly authority be subject to him. Pope Gregory the, the Seventh humbled Emperor Henry IV, I was talking about this last week, in 1076, the Pope called a council of bishops and proclaimed that the emperor could no longer ruin his kingdom. In January 10, 1077, the emperor traveled to Italy to the castle where the Pope was staying on a visit to the Duchess Matilda and begged his forgiveness. The haughty Pope forced the emperor to stay outside in winter cold, barefoot and fasting for three days. Uh, Pope Innocent III humbled King John of England, 1199 to 1216, when his highness, the Pope, became displeased with the king, he excommunicated him and issued a decree declaring that he was no longer king, releasing the people of England from any obligation to him. The haughty Pope ordered King Philip of France to organize an army. Can you imagine the Pope telling, hey, you the king of France, you go fight the king of England. Guess what? He prepared to do it. This is the control they had. So, he, which he began to do with great zeal, eager to conquer England for himself, the Pope called for a crusade against John, promising the participants remission of sins and a share of the spoils of war. In the meantime, King John yielded to the pressure and submitted to the Pope, pledging complete allegiance to him in all things and resigning England and Ireland into the Pope's hands. So it would be like if the government wanted the president assassinated, and they would say, anybody that assassinates the president will be guaranteed freedom and not be arrested or tried for his crime because you're doing the, the, the will of the state. That's what the Catholic Church did. Any of their people, any emperor that opposed them, they would, they would re renege all, all um, loyalty of their people to the king and reward anyone that undermined him or overthrew him. Uh, so these are the kind of things, and you know, I could go on and on talking about Church of Rome, but anyway, enough of that nonsense. Uh, it's a whore. It is a, it is, the Bible de describes it properly as Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations there. And here's the interesting thing. Even the Catholic Church Encyclopedia says that Babylon in the Bible is symbolic speaking of Rome look at 1st Peter chapter 5 and this is the verse they use because they say that Peter wrote his epistle from Rome 1st Peter 5 and verse 13 and they even their own encyclopedia they state this as proving that Peter was the first Pope appointed by Jesus and of course they say that the church was built on Peter, not on Jesus. First uh, Peter 5.13 says, The church that is at Babylon elected together with you saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Now, historically there's no evidence whatsoever that Peter ever was at Rome. But he was at Babylon. The real earthly city of Babylon. But see, the Catholics say... This Babylon here is really Rome. What they don't realize is they're really telling that what Revelation 17 says about them is true. They're called 
Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. Because they are spiritual. Babylon is, a, throughout the Bible, is pictured as apostate or religion opposed to God. And, and that's what they are. Um, so this was, again, this is where all the Protestants come from. And, 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 and they're a sea line. Now, I want to move up, move ahead a little bit. So we had the Protestants, and then in the late 1800s and early 1920s, you had the, what was called the rise of fundamentalism in America, basically in America. And uh, uh, rise of fundamentalism, let me get my notes here again so I can refer to my notes. This is where things written down. Um, and this is considered by James Beller in his book called Sacred Betrayal a great counterfeit of Baptists in the last century in page 36 of his book and this is this is this is the thing that we need to understand page 36 in his book James Beller says this quote we now return to the task at hand. The second blow laid to Baptist roots was the elevation of fundamental history over Baptist heritage. I believe it was an accidental blow. It was never meant to sever us from our testimony, but it happened. Bible-believing Baptists of the 21st century are severed. Our heritage has been forsaken. Allow me to lay some groundwork. In May of 1999, I attended a Baptist history tour of New England. Somewhere in Rhode Island, in a wooded, abandoned cemetery, I stood at the foot of the grave of Obadiah Holmes. I wept as I heard the story of his suffering for the cause of liberty in America. Holmes, the Baptist preacher, was beaten nearly to death for holding an unauthorized church service in Massachusetts. His blood ran like a river from Boston Townhouse Square, the same square visited with the blood of the patriots at Boston Massacre. I do not remember when I wept so violently. My tears were shed for two distinct reasons. First, I was overwhelmed by the sacrifice of this Baptist preacher for the sake of liberty, and second, I could not believe that I had never heard of him. You know, I've been in fundamental churches for 20 years, 30 years. Went to a fundamentalist Bible institute. I never heard of Obadiah Holmes or John Clark. I heard of Roger Williams. But he's we're not even so sure he really was a Baptist. He was a separatist. He'd been more like a fundamentalist of our day, but not really a Baptist. And, then, and he says, I was, ashamed, you know, and this is a guy who was a Baptist pastor. He said, I was ashamed of myself when I heard for his testimony. I determined that at least in my own ministry, Obadiah Holmes and others like him would not be forgotten. I just assumed that Baptists had already always operated on the edge of acceptance. Since I had never heard a word from the pulpit about Baptist heritage, I assumed we had been sort of backward. I cannot remember number the times I had heard, sadly, quote, sadly there were no great Baptist evangelists, unquote, or the, quote, the great camp meetings were the invention of the Presbyterians, or, quote, the greatest revivals were the product of Finney, Moody, Sam Jones, and Billy Sunday, unquote. I often thought at least the Baptists had Charles Spurgeon, Perhaps Adnan Judson made up for our ineptness 
Wasn't Tommy just Baptist? No. I was doomed to believe that all of us until I ran headlong into the testimony of the early Baptist of America. My heart was set on fire as I heard the testimony of John Clark, Isaac Backus. I was thrilled with the power of God in the life of Shubal Stearns and the separate Baptist revival in the South. Think for a minute. If it was illegal to be a Baptist in this country until after the Revolutionary War, how did the Baptists become the largest non-Catholic group of Christians in America? The answer is Shubal Stearns and the separate Baptist revival. That was just two or three hours from west of here. Baptists have the greatest legacy of evangelists America has ever produced. Jeremiah Moore, Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall, Abraham Marshall, Samuel Harris, uh, John Waller, who was also known prior as Swearing Jack, uh, John Taylor, Jeremiah Bardman, to name a few. The Baptist people today may have never heard of Holmes, Clark, Williams, and Bacchus, but secular historians of the 19th century certainly had. Here, the oft-quoted 19th century historian Jordan Bynecraft comments on the beating of Odi Holmes. When Clark, that'd be Roger Clark, uh, John Clark, the pure and tolerant Baptist of Rhode Island, began to preach to a small audience in Lynn, Massachusetts, he was seized by the civil officers. He and his companions were tried and condemned to pay a fine of 20 or 30 pounds, and Holmes who refused to pay his fine, was whipped unmercifully, unquote. Professor J.L. Dimmon on the Baptists and the forming of Rhode Island wrote, quote, Thus, for the first time in history, a form of government was adopted which drew a clear and unmistakable line between the temporal and spiritual power, and a community came into being which was an anomaly among the nations. That is, a deviation from the common rule. Because the common rule was the Catholic Church ruled and you modeled after the Catholic Church and you united the church with a state. John Clark, a Baptist, and Obadiah Holmes started the first church, the first colony in the world that separated church and state. Gave freedom of conscience. The famous judge, Joseph Story, whom David Barton is so fond of quoting, said this about Clark and Williams and the government of Rhode Island. In the code of laws established by them, we read, For the first time since Christianity ascended the throne of the seizures, the declaration that conscience should be free and men should not be punished for worshiping God in the way that they were persuaded he requires. And quote, unquote. And, and it goes on. And he says this, We shall examine the Baptist influence on liberty later in this briefing. As we have stated, Bible-believing Baptists of the 21st century have been severed. There is an ecumenical fundamental history that reaches back approximately 100 years to the time of the citywide revivals under the famous evangelists of the 19th century and early 20th century. However, Baptist heritage reaches further back to the ancient Baptists of Europe and to the American heritage of liberty. Our Baptist heritage reaches back to the frontier and the wilderness where a forgotten group of separate Baptist evangelists gave birth to the greatest republic the world has ever known. This is our Baptist heritage. And Wake Forest University professor... G.W. Paschal wrote, quote, I make bold to say that these separate Baptists have proved to be the most remarkable body of Christians America has ever known, unquote. And of course, uh, he goes on in this and talks about the influence of fundamentalism. And if you notice, and if you have your chart, fundamentalism arises in the late 1800s and the early 1920s you have the rise of fundamentalism 
And it's, it's, what it is is the reaction to modernism coming into denominational schools, Bible schools. Do you, do you realize that Yale and Harvard were Bible schools during the colonial days? They were started to train preachers of the gospel. Now they're modernist universities of the worst kind. And, 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 of course, they've been gone for a long time, but there were others. There was these denominational schools, you know, the, like the Protestant schools, all started, uh, the German rationalism came into America, and modernism, and with it, they, they took over the schools and the higher institutions of learning. And so in reaction to this, there, there rose up within these, these fundamentalists, they called them fundamentalists, who held to, you know, the just the few fundamental doctrines of the Bible, inspiration of Scripture and the, the virgin birth and resurrection of Christ and, and so on. And, and they, they opposed it, and they kind of withdrew from the schools and started their own, and they started this movement called fundamentalism. And about the same time, you have conventions starting in Baptist circles. The rise of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Northern Baptist Convention, and... Now they say, you know, the Southern Baptists will tell you, well, you know, the convention doesn't bind you. <laughs> yeah. If you want to believe that, you're deceived. Because I remember years ago, Southern Baptist churches trying to pull out of the Southern Baptist Convention because of the liberalism in there, and they had a legal battle to get possession of their buildings. There's control. There's loyalty to these conventions. Now, if you read doctrinal statements of many Southern Baptist churches, they read much like ours. But there's a loyalty there. In fact, uh, one, one writer said that this loyalty was illustrated by um, better by no one than W.A. Criswell. Criswell lived from 1909 to 2002. He was a great expositor of the word, he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas for many years, toontime president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and very well known. He stood on the right side of many fundamental doctrines. He criticized apostasy in the Baptist denominations, yet he would not leave the Southern Baptist Convention and had an audience with the Pope in 1971. He praised Catholicism and refused to announce apostasy within the Southern Baptist Convention. What's the problem? His loyalty was, he was more loyal to the convention than he was to the Lord. By the way, if you're a missionary with the Southern Baptist Convention, they hold your pensions. They hold your pensions. That's unscriptural. But there's been efforts. Uh, so, so what fundamentalism did, fundamentalism uh, with the rising conventions and all this, you had many Baptists who were attracted by this fundamentalist and, and were some of the leading fundamentalists. And so you have, you know, if you notice there, I have the, a line from the rise of fundamentalism over toward the other graph, the true line of churches and the conventions over toward the the Catholic line of churches, it's because the, the two started, started to, tried to merge. 
Many, ba- many Baptists became fundamentalists. Some of you, you know, left, in, left Baptist heritage entirely. Do you know what's happening to fundamentalism? It's going back in to the Catholic Church. Because it's got many of the Protestant doctrines. In fact, let me give you some big names. Part of some of what came out of the rise of fundamentalism was called Bible Presbyterians. J.G. Machen was a great defender of the faith. He taught at Princeton Seminary. Charles Woodsbridge followed him. He was another one. Um, and so they fought, and, and they were considered fundamentalists, and they fought the liberalism in these denominational schools. Out of, out of this came Carl McIntyre. He had a radio ministry and a, a, a big ministry in New Jersey, Cape Town, New Jersey. Um, a lot of people followed him. He also was a great... Uh, uh, defender of liberty in America, patriotism and, and exposing communism, and that he got into political activism and all that kind of stuff, so he was kind of a big name. In Ireland, you had Ian Paisley. Ian Paisley was a Presbyterian. He pastored Free Presbyterian Church of Ireland. He also was a, uh, an MP, I think, member of parliament. He got voted into the European Union, parliament of the European Union, by a vast majority, and at one point the Pope spoke at the European Union. He stood up in the meeting and declared him an antichrist. And the Pope's goons threw him down the steps like bleachers and wounded him pretty bad. But he, you know, he was a fighter against Catholics. You know, he was a very political activist also. But they, were, they, were, they called them fundamentalists. Bob Jones University had to speak there all the time. He was a frequent speaker at Bob Jones University. Which, by the way, Bob Jones University, Bob Jones was a Methodist. That is a Protestant school. And many, Bob Mitchell can tell you he went to Bob Jones University, many graduates of Bob Jones University became Calvinists because of reading Ian Paisley's writings. They were enthralled because he was a great pulpiteer. He was a great orator. But anyway, so you had these guys... And, and many of these churches, even Presbyterians, okay, the Presbyterian church that my sister goes to, Pennsylvania, she told me here a year or two ago that you can be baptized by pouring or immersion. It's your choice. Now, they call themselves a Bible church now. They've left. They've severed ties with the denomination over the homosexuality issue. However, they still will allow women deacons and my brother-in-law said, if you read their constitution, it's very weak even against homosexuality. But, you know, they still have a lot of women's deacons. But again, you can be baptized by pouring, or you can be baptized by immersion, whatever you want. It's a Protestant origin. It's pedo-baptism. It's without the authority of Christ. And historically, what you find during the Protestant Age of the the Dark Ages and 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 even during the Reformation, those who left Protestantism, for example, um, Hubmeyer, I think it was Hubmeyer, was a Protestant. He got saved. You know, he did. He had been baptized as a Protestant. He went to a Baptist church and got baptized. Why? Because Protestantism is without authority of Christ. Their head 
their root is a man. The IFCA, which is the Independent Fundamental Churches of America, a lot of Bible churches, particularly in Pennsylvania, they get the fundamentalists. Their origin, they come out of the fundamentalism. They're not Baptists. In his, some of them have, some of them, and some of them even, there is a church in Ohio that was very well known, um, something Bible church in Ohio. And I was told firsthand that they would baptize by either, by, they again give you a choice, they would baptize you by pouring or they would baptize you by immersion, depending on what you want. Uh, many of them had elders, not just pastors and deacons, as, as Baptist churches do, they also had ruling elders. Uh, these are Bible churches. Again, these are without scriptural authority. They really have man as their heads. They look to schools. You know, here's the difference between fundamental churches and the Baptist church. The questions they asked you. A fundamentalist will ask you, where'd you go to school? A Baptist will ask you, where's, what's your church? Who's your pastor? Where were you baptized? The, the, fundament, the fundamentalist says, and I used to ask these questions, so I know. What camp are you associated with? You know, what, what group? Are you associated with the soul of the Lord, by the way, which is fundamentalist? John R. Rice was not a Baptist. Sorry. Uh, he, was, he was fundamentalist. You know, so you associated with the soul of the Lord. You associated with Hal Anderson. You associated with, you know, this IFCA or who you associate with. That's, that's a question I used to ask. I don't ask those questions anymore. I say, what's your, church, what's your pastor's name? Uh, where were you baptized? That's what Baptists, that's, that's the authority. See, schools, conventions, denomination, camps, all those things uh, are the scriptural authority. Um, you know, and, and many times they, the churches appeal to um, their school for, to answer the difficult questions of the Bible. Uh, so, but, so what you have is all this, which a man is head of, and all these churches that are really without scriptural authority. But the Baptists just continued as it was given to them, and that's, that's why we say we believe in Baptist perpetuity. They continue to pe- preach the truth, to baptize as Jesus and the disciples, the apostles had taught them, and to hold to the clear Bible teachings that they had been given. Uh, Les Potter wrote an article, and I'll, and I'll finish with this, says this, A New Testament church is a literal visible organism. It is a theocracy under the Christ whose word is its constitution. The headship of Christ in that body is not shared with a denomination, convention, board, people, or any doctrinal belief that undermines it. We have a clearly defined working model of the Lord's church, which he founded during his earthly ministry. He personally commissioned this church, promising its perpetuity and reproduction. Matthew 16 and Matthew 28. New Testament churches therefore continue today as the Lord promised. The Bible is also clear that salvation is by God's grace, not by the church. The blood of Christ satisfied God's holy demand of justice on our sin. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe his name. Therefore, all who have received him are brethren within the family of God. Contrary to popular religious conception, God's word never uses salvation and church synonymously. They're two different things. Salvation is not in a church. 
That is what the Catholic Church teaches, though. If you salvation is in the church, and Protestants do too. Uh, the ex executorship of the kingdom of God was appointed to the church and is therefore the visible manifestation until the Lord returns. But there are many who have received the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who have never become part of a new Testament church. I'm not saying that all these people are not saved. What I'm saying is they are outside the scriptural authority of a New Testament church. Furthermore, the most religious organizations calling themselves churches were founded by men and not Christ. The Roman Catholic Church came into existence at the Council of Nicaea 325 A.D., many years after Christ founded his church. This is obviously not the same church which Christ appointed the kingdom. All Protestant churches, quote-unquote, and their many splits and revisions are reformed organizations of this Catholic universal church. They may preach the gospel, their members may be saved by the same grace that saves anyone who will receive it, but their organization was not founded by Christ. They are not a New Testament church. In like manner, churches with a Baptist name whose head is the denomination cannot claim Christ as the head of that church body. Likewise, any church of any name which embraces Protestant Reformed Catholic doctrines uh, is, uh, cannot maintain the Christ as the little head of that assembly, and so on. And so, um, again, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. He said it would be to the end of the age, and speaks of perpetuity or continue. It would continue. There would always be churches until, like the one... He started until he comes. True churches. These others were started by men who left the truth. They forsook the truth and started their own institutions over which men are the head. And they are not true churches. They do not have the authority of Christ. That's why our Baptist forefathers always rebaptized anybody that came from that lineage. You know, I've been reading John T. Christians. He has two books, volume one and volume two, on Baptist, her- Baptist history. And during the Reformation, there were those who left, who kind of broke away from the Protestants and adopted some of the Baptist doctrines. But they would not join Baptist churches. Yet they wanted to be identified with the Baptists. And the Baptists of that day would not accept them. Because they would not sever their ties by rejecting the baptism of Protestantism and be baptized in Baptist churches. You know, we need to hold to the faith that once was once delivered unto the saints. That means to hold true. To, that means we have to examine the baptism of those who would join with us. Is it Baptists? What's the heritage of their baptism? Of what root of what tree did it come? That we might be found faithful until the Lord comes for us.